Well, as you may know, we are starting our new sermon series today on the epistle, Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And just to help us to get a sense of the context, I actually want to begin this morning with a parable. So imagine that there are two parents, and they're going out for the night, and they've entrusted their kids to a babysitter. And the babysitter, uh, the kids have already eaten, the babysitter just needs to put the kids to sleep and, and everything like that. And actually, the parents give the babysitter both verbal and written instructions on the important things. So they say, you know, the kids have already eaten dinner, but they can have a couple of cookies for dessert. They say they're allowed to watch one show, and it's already queued up for them. But please have them winding down and in bed by 8 p.m., otherwise they'll be all worn out for the next day at school. And lastly, the parents let the sitter know they'll have their cell phone, so be in touch if they have any questions. Now I have a question for us. In this situation, does the babysitter have authority? And I think the answer is clearly that they do. They've been put in charge of supervising the children. But here's the thing, it's delegated authority. It's not inherent authority like what the parents have. Another way to say this is that the babysitter has been entrusted with a stewardship. And the test of a faithful steward, as we saw in Jesus' parable from Mark 12, is not in their ability to create their own standards, right? But in how faithfully they implement the standards of the true authority. For example, what if the babysitter thought, you know, I could be in the good graces of the children if I let them eat a few extra cookies. And this movie that's queued up, it's kind of lame. A lot of kids' movies are lame. And so I'm going to let them watch something that maybe we can both enjoy. And maybe this idea of getting the, par- getting the kids in bed by 8 a.m., I mean, uh, by 8 p.m., <laughs> if only. <laughs> maybe it was just a suggestion. And really, the kids would be all right to go to bed closer to 9. And in reality, the kids are on a bit of a sugar high from the cookies and a bit wound up from the content of the movie, so maybe it's okay to shoot for 9.30. Now, I can sort of feel the anger thermometer rising among the parents in the room. (laughs) Now, what would the parents say when they return to the babysitter and learn that their instructions have been ignored? Do you think the parents would hire the sitter again? Absolutely not. The instructions were not just suggestions, they were instructions. And complicated things might arise, but they were called to try to be faithful, as faithful as possible to those instructions. The babysitter didn't have the authority to change the plan. They were just a steward, right? And in many ways, this is the situation we find in 1 Timothy. Please grab a pew Bible and turn there with me to page 991. So the churches of Ephesus have been founded upon sound doctrine and apostolic practices, both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but they were departing from this foundation. In fact, the churches were so mixed up that when the Apostle Paul is finally ready to move on in his missionary journey, he asked his trusted associate Timothy to remain at Ephesus, verse 3, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine in Greek heterodox teaching, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And here Paul seems to be commissioning Timothy not so much 
as a local pastor, but more as a kind of primitive bishop that is overseeing the local pastors of that region. And he's his charge to restore gospel order and sound doctrine, as Paul calls it in verse 10. So that's the situation, and needless to say, sound doctrine and apostolic order are still vital for the church today. Amen? Amen. At Incarnation, we've also been entrusted with the stewardship of a young church. We are the babysitters that have been given a precious charge. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has left us written instructions that remain authoritative for us today. Look with me at the verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, right away, it's important for us to see that Paul's authority as an apostle issues directly from God the Father and God the Son. Right? And on this point, the rest of the New Testament is in, in agreement. In Acts 9.15, Jesus refers to Paul as his own chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We also know from several places that Paul spent time with the original apostles in Jerusalem, setting before them the gospel that he had received by divine revelation and making sure that they were on the same page. And they were like, yeah, that's what we preach too. So Paul says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. In other words, it doesn't really matter who you heard it from because there's only one gospel. So it's not surprising that St. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16, which, he says, the ignorant and unstable twist for their own destruction. Today it's important as ever, I think, to heed Peter's warnings not to dismiss or twist the Scriptures that come down to us by the hand of the Apostle Paul and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because there are some who, disliking Paul's zealous personality or social teaching or high view of the church, have tried to drive a wedge right between Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ, who chose Paul as his chosen instrument. Others have tried to drive a wedge between Paul and the other apostles, as if Paul had his own gospel message and the other apostles had theirs. I remember in my senior year of college, I was helping to lead a Bible study, and some of the other leaders wanted to study Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But as I read through it afresh, I remember I was sort of embarrassed by some of its old-fashioned sounding teaching about marriage. And I suggested, like, maybe we skip those parts. And I remember my campus minister, now I think very wisely, said it's not wise to turn a blind eye to the parts of God's Word that make us uncomfortable. Right? But instead, we should lean into those things and listen up and hear what God is saying. Interestingly, less than a year later, I was married. And these very passages became a precious guide to me. Not least for my understanding of what it means for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. The truth is, brothers and sisters, if Paul were deleted from the equation as some would wish... Not only would our understanding of Christian marriage be impoverished, but the New Testament would be left in tatters and the faith would be unrecognizable. Paul is the primary theologian of Christ's death and resurrection and the source of the core doctrines of the Reformation. 
Another more subtle way that people try to dismiss or dismiss or diminish Paul's authority today is by denying his authorship of the pastoral epistles that bear his name, including 1 and 2 Timothy. Now I'll just say, I've studied these arguments at length, and I can only say that I find them highly speculative and unconvincing. Think about it. In 1 Timothy, we find Paul sharing heartfelt reflections upon his own conversion listing the names of specific heretics in the church in Ephesus, and even giving Timothy advice about his consistent stomach aches. In 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul even goes so far as to specifically request of Timothy, quote, When you come back, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Are we to believe that these are the words of another author? Surely the burden of proof rests on those who would deny Paul's authorship. If any of you are curious about this topic and would like to discuss it in more detail, I'd love to do so during coffee hour or some other time. But for now, I just want to point out the inescapable truth that the pastoral epistles are a part of the Bible and that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that quote, by the way, is taken from the pastoral epistles. <laughs> in fact, I think I, I find it ironically appropriate that 1 Timothy, which critical scholars are so eager to dismiss, equips the church to recognize false teachers. <laughs> Paul says they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Years back, I was hanging out with several campus ministers, and we were just debating in the living room. We were talking about issues of heaven and hell, so who gets in, and does it last forever, and things like that. And I remember one of our mentors walked in the room and overheard our debate, and, uh, and he chimed in. He said, you know, hey guys, there's a lot of things that we can't know about this topic, but don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. His faithful words sort of washed over our conversation. Don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. In other words, based on the scriptures, there are certain things that we can absolutely know. For example, heaven, and more specifically the new heavens and the new earth, means spending eternity with God in everlasting joy. Amen? That's what it means. Whereas hell, whatever the specifics may look like, means judgment and everlasting separation from God. Now those truths are clear. They represent what we do know based on the biblical witness. And whatever disagreements that room full of InterVarsity staff had about what heaven and hell will actually look like, if we can agree on those basic truths, and we did, it should have massive Implications for the way that we think about our lives and our ministries and the way that we spend our time on earth. Are you guys following me? Yes. Yeah. Right, I'm going to need to be like Fumi and tell you to talk back to me a little bit. <laughs> because isn't it the case that oftentimes our abstract theorizing about things are, that are unclear in Scripture only serves to take our energy away from, the, from applying the very things that are clear in Scripture? Amen? Amen. In speaking of the heretics of his own day, Paul says they became speculators rather than stewards. And I think it's actually relatively easy to tell the difference. Speculators are obsessed with filling in the gaps in God's instructions and allowing that to distract them from obedience. Whereas stewards refuse to set aside what they do know for what they don't know. 
Now, there is such a thing as a healthy curiosity about the deep questions of the Bible, but speculation of the kind that Paul is denouncing in this letter tends toward pride, whereas stewardship springs up from loving trust. Speculation focuses on secret knowledge or gnosis rather than public truth, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. I think in modern times there's a host of Gnostic speculators producing YouTube videos with eerie music and font in all caps and you know, strange theories about the Catholic Church and the lost tribes of Israel and the end times and whatever current events got them frazzled in the moment. And the Apostle Paul would warn us, don't consume that stuff. Don't listen to them. Speculators expend all their energy on secondary matters, just like Jesus' critique of the scribes and Pharisees, who tithe the tiniest spices, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Stewards, on the other hand, focus on the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? Verse 5, which is really the central verse in this passage, puts it plainly. It says, the aim of our charge, here it is, the aim of our charge is love. love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the heart of the matter is the heart. The aim, the true goal of gospel ministry is not the accumulation of knowledge or even spiritual experiences. The aim is to see genuine love spring forth from people from the inside out, issuing from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The only thing that counts, Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 5-6, is faith expressing itself through love. That's the only thing that counts. In his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey writes, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> and it shouldn't surprise us that the main thing for Paul, love and faith, is the same as the main thing for the Lord Jesus. Right? What did, what did Jesus care about more than childlike faith and genuine love for our neighbor? That's what he constantly preached. When my oldest daughter, Avila, was about four years old, I remember I was about to drive her to preschool, but before I ducked into the car, I was listening to my neighbor describe an event from the previous night. And once I got in the car, Avila looked at me and looked at my neighbor through the window, and then she said, Dad, is anyone in the world smarter than us? <laughs> and I said, yes, Avila, there are definitely people in the world who are smarter than us. Now, Avila's pretty sharp, so she looked at me kind of skeptically and said, Who? <laughs> and I said, Well, you never know, really. You might think you're smarter than someone else and come to find out they're smarter than you. And then I added, But we shouldn't be worrying about whether you're smarter than people. There are more important than things like that, like love, right? So we continued to drive, and I could see the gears were still turning in her mind, and she wasn't quite satisfied. And all of a sudden, she asks... Well, how do you know that love is the most important unless you're smart? <laughs> and I was sort of dumbstruck for a moment. I couldn't believe that this four-year-old just came up with that. But I finally gathered my wits again. I asked her, all right, Avila, would you rather be a really smart person that's not very loving or a really loving person that's not very smart? 
And she said, I'd rather be smart and lonely. <laughs> I said, that wasn't the question. <laughs> I said, she smiled at me and she said, loving. <laughs> and I said, that's right, good girl. Go to school. <laughs> and I let her out of the car and I sort of let out a sigh of relief, like, good grief. <laughs> I'm just happy that I was able to get out of that one. <laughs> it's so easy, isn't it? in our human nature, to slip into valuing lesser things. And every once in a while, I think the church and even individual Christians need to step back and evaluate whether they're still aiming at the main thing. Here's a few diagnostic questions. Has your love for God grown cold? Are you still trusting Him in your day-to-day life? Is your devotion to Jesus still leading you into practical, sacrificial love and service for others? Because certain persons, Paul says in verses 6 and 7, by swerving from these, by swerving from love and faith, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the most dangerous kind of ignorance, isn't it? The prideful kind. There's one thing to be blind. It's another thing to be a blind guide. But Paul reminds us of another diagnostic tool to keep us on track. One that we use every Lent and the church has been using from the beginning. The Ten Commandments. In verse 8, Paul moves on from talking about false teachers to talking about a good use of the law. He points out that... um, There would be no need for the law if there were no one that was inclined to sin. That's true. And then he begins listing out several sins that correspond to the Ten Commandments. Specifically, Commandments 5 through 9 in that order. Did anyone else catch that? So verse 9 talks about those who strike their fathers and mothers, corresponding to the Fifth Commandment, to honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 10 speaks of murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, corresponding to the 6th and 7th commandment, and so on and so on. Now, this section, I think, would be enough for a full-length sermon in its own right, but since I'm rounding the corner on this one, I just want us to notice three things. All of, us, all of them, I think, relate to common misconceptions among American Christians. First, I want us to notice that enslavers is on this list. That is, those who steal people and sell them into slavery. It's directly condemned by Paul the Apostle in verse 10 under the heading of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Mm. The word is sometimes translated as slave traders, but other times more generically as kidnappers. Now, this would include, I want us to know this, a direct condemnation of the race-based chattel slavery that we are most familiar with as Americans. There were other forms of slavery in the primitive economies of Bible times, and we'll talk more about those actually later on in this letter. But one of the biggest lies that our culture believes about the Bible is that it gave actual support to racism and the African slave trade, and that could not be any further from the truth. Sinful people sought support from the Bible, but they were barking up the wrong tree, friends. Not only is it the case that all of the earliest and most important abolitionists were Bible-believing Christians, but also, far from being the seedbed of racism, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin points out, 
If you care about diversity, don't dismiss Christianity. She says, it is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. And she's right. Second, notice in Paul's discussion of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, both homosexual and heterosexual sin are mentioned. The Greek word for the sexually immoral is pornos, which is where we get our English word pornography. In the New Testament, pornos refers to any illicit sexual relations outside of the context of marriage. And this is important for Christians to understand that Paul considered heterosexual sin just as much adultery as homosexual sin, right? Because it's hypocritical for the church or the Christian family to focus on homosexual sin to the, to the neglect of the more common heterosexual variety. And to do so is nothing less than selective bigotry. Both are called out as sin. Both will require repentance, mercy, and discipleship, and hallelujah. Neither are the unpardonable sin. Third, and lastly, I want us to notice the connection that Paul makes between the law and the gospel. So he finishes off his list by mentioning liars, perjurers, that's a big deal to God too, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. In other words, Paul is making a connection between obedience and sound doctrine, right? Between deeds of love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. His point is not that the law saves us or that any of us can live such a good life that we don't need the cross of Christ. If that were the case, Paul himself would never be saved because in just a few sentences, he's going to tell you he's the foremost of sinners, But Paul wants us to know that Jesus came not only to free us from the penalty of sin, a sort of cosmic get-out-of-jail-free card, but also to transform us from the inside out. Amen? Amen. We can't do it by our own strength, but the gospel unlocks God's power to transform us. My friend Wesley used to be an agnostic Buddhist, and he had these massive struggles with depression and loneliness. And he wore it on his face and in his body language every day. And I remember when he came to Christ and was baptized, it was like somebody flipped on the interior light in his soul. His whole countenance changed. We saw new parts of his personality emerge. Now, it's not that he never struggled again with depression or loneliness, but the gospel caused a catalytic shift in him. And things were never the same. Nowadays, Wesley spends his time serving in youth ministry and training other Christians in evangelism. And the reason for this is that he believes there's nothing we can do that's more loving, that's more helpful to someone than to share the gospel of Jesus with them. That's how he was set free, and he wants other people to be set free too. Amen? So let me summarize as we begin to draw to a close. We began with a reflection on the idea of stewardship or delegated authority. The church and Ephesus had been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel, but certain people had led it into speculations. All of this was distracting them from the main thing, genuine love and gospel faith. So Paul presents the Ten Commandments as a sort of diagnostic against false teachers, pointing out that loving obedience is in accordance with the gospel of glory. And I wonder if we understand today how precious a thing it is to be, to, to, how precious a thing it is that Christ 
speaking through his chosen instrument, the Apostle Paul, left us, 1 Timothy, to reflect on as a church. Will we lean into that this fall and be reminded of God's will for his church? Will we let the Holy Spirit challenge us to keep the main thing the main thing? Or will we be like the babysitter who began to speculate and freestyle it, setting aside the instructions of the true authority? God grant us trusting obedience through the power of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Amen.